In this episode, Chris, Jenny, and I sit down with Jeff Feltz from Center Mass. As a young sniper, Jeff found himself well-trained but poorly prepared for a very dynamic hostage situation. This setback sent him on a journey to improve his training and resulted in the formation of Center Mass, the National Patrol Rifle Conference and Championship, as well as the Patrol Rifle Utilization Survey. Every year, participants from around the country compete in a variety of patrol rifle scenarios taken from the streets of America. So Jeff, welcome to the show. For the folks that aren't aware or don't know you, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background and then how you ended up where you are today, and particularly uh, with Center Mass and the Patrol Rifle Conference? Yeah, sure. Uh, I graduated high school in 1984. I went right into the Army. I uh, spent three years in the Army as a military policeman because I wanted to be a cop when I grew up. Uh, got out of the service and uh, went to community college for a couple of years and then started my first job uh, as a police officer in a, in a suburban Detroit community, um, upscale community. And I got hired there. And about five months later, they had SWAT testing going on and nobody in this little agency could pass the physical fitness uh, requirements. So he said they got this Feltz kid who uh, was in a military police corps for three years. Uh, he was a cop in the service, they said, and uh, we could write him uh, a waiver and let him try out for the team since nobody else in the agency could pass the requirements. So they asked me if I wanted to do that. And I was like, uh, yeah, sure, let me try it. So uh, I went and I did it and I made the team. And next thing you know, I had no intent on staying at this agency whatsoever. But next thing you know, I was doing all this cool stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, do what I dreamed to do, what I wanted to do for my entire life. So a year later, uh, after being on this team, they sent me to basic police sniper school, uh, and lead instructor for that was none other than legendary Marine Corps sniper, Carlos Hathcock. Uh, and it was a 12 day school. Uh, I learned so much from that guy. It was absolutely incredible. Probably the biggest takeaway that, that I learned from Carlos was, um, to believe in yourself and to take calculated risks. It's okay to take calculated risks, not stupid risks, calculated risks. And uh, that kind of drove me in, in a whole new direction uh, in life, to be quite frank with you. Uh, fast forward uh, a few more years, multiple call outs behind me. And uh, here we go to the Super Bowl. Uh, there's a, a bank robbery and uh, a pursuit and uh, bad guys end up crashing and uh, taking a, a family hostage. Long story short, uh, one of the bad guys comes out and wants to gunfight, uh, and it's, it's time to, to gunfight. And as a police sniper, I miss him with uh, three rounds and struck him with one. Um, the three rounds that I missed with uh, damn near killed other officers on the perimeter. Uh, there were uh, lessons that were learned that were absolutely invaluable. I'm, I'm happy to share this experience with others so that uh, they or their team don't make the exact same mistake over again. And anyhow, the debriefs, this whole thing and such, not only you know revealed that stuff, but there was also lots of things within the training realm that needed to be improved. Um, and and you know you, once you go through something like that, um, you will commit yourself to do better, how, whatever it takes in the future. Uh, you owe that not only to uh, the citizens you serve, but to your teammates and obviously to yourself, et cetera. Uh, so that's exactly what I did. And 
the outcome of that was the start of center mass. I needed a rifle rest back then. Uh, I didn't have it. I was shooting standing offhand. So I developed this rifle rest. Uh, a bunch of people told me that uh, I should go into business being a, a young, overconfident ex-soldier, young SWAT guy. I was like, yeah, I can do anything. And so I started a business and uh, quickly I was failing because I knew nothing about cash flow or about business and such. The, the product was decent. But you um, made up for an enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Indeed, I did. Um, so uh, as, uh, as I'm learning uh, the first year in the business, you need something else to generate cash flow as you're trying to perfect your, your product. Uh, there was this insignia out there called the SWAT operator insignia that uh, the, the uh, screaming eagle, as some guys call it. And uh, so I knew one of the local cops that owned this thing. And I asked him if I could sell it for him, uh, be one of his, his very first dealers. And he said, oh, yeah, Jeff, you can. You can go ahead and do that. So I put it on this new thing back then called the Internet back in 1997. I don't know if you know about it or not. And uh, our cash flow, our cash flow problems were quickly solved. Um, and the following year, in '98, we opened up the training section of our business, which uh, involved uh, patrol rifle instructor classes. As far as we know, probably the first commercial active shooter school in the entire country, uh, and then a basic police sniper school. And then rifle rest kicked into high gear, and the military started buying them. And we're very proud that uh, we played a small, small role in. Uh, supporting our snipers overseas and, and doing their job and uh, reducing terrorists whenever possible. Uh, and then the, the entire company just continued to grow, running it out of my basement, uh, you know, running it part-time while I'm working a full-time cop job on call for SWAT all the time. And part of that time I was a reserve soldier. So lots and lots of stuff going on, um, but that's just the, the way I wanted it. You know, I wouldn't have it any other way back then. So anyhow, that was the, the genesis of Center Mass. That's where it all came from. Uh, one particular uh, call out, uh, failure, how do I fix it? And here I am today. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, that, that path after the, the failure that you described? What were some of the nuggets that were revealed to you that were missing, like from the training and preparation aspect? Because uh, I think this speaks to the core of the training that's offered and the spirit of the NPRC. Well, sure. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the biggest takeaway was, is, is after I graduated basic sniper school, you know, Carlos, incredible, incredible instructor. I mean, I could shoot prone, no problem from all kinds of different distances. I learned how to camouflage and conceal myself uh, like I never learned in the army. That's for darn sure. That Marine taught me all kinds of good stuff. And uh, it was such a pleasure uh, meeting him and, and uh, being around him. It was incredible. Um, but I noticed as soon as I started getting call outs right after uh, basic sniper school that uh, very rarely was I ever in a prone shooting position. I was always in some sort of, of, of position other than a prone shooting position. And no bad guys ever stand still. They are always moving to some extent. I don't care if their body's standing still, their head's turning, they're breathing, they're blinking, they're moving to some extent. And uh, that was uh, another uh, uh, takeaway from, from all these things that culminated up to this particular day is we actually, we actually kind of saw this coming. We're trying to do our best to prepare for it, but we were too late. Uh, when, when the game came, uh, I was not prepared for it. Um, and, uh, you know, a police sniper, you cannot miss. There is no missing. You know, when you miss, one of two things happen. Downrange hazard, 
for uh, property and moreover, more importantly, innocent people, including your teammates. Yeah, the um, atypical shooting positions, probably some of the least favorite things that uh, folks do, which we're always forced into. If anybody's uh, attended NPRC, we know that you're going to be shooting from an atypical shooting position and then sure. dealing with moving targets because people really stand still. So those are two challenges that apply to most of our lethal force encounters. But, you know, my awareness of center mass was I was a new patrol rifleman in uh, a large uh, agency on the West Coast, and uh, the program was well written. But one of the things that the cadre uh, impressed upon us was like be a lifelong learner. And one of the things that they pointed us to was uh, the, the Trexpo when they had it out here uh, on the West ah. Coast, and and center mass. And then as a result, looking at the patrol rifle manual okay. that that you guys, you and a couple of your your buddies, and and I've, I've met those guys. Um, authored and it, it really was like one of the most comprehensive manuals. Can you talk a little bit about just the development of that and what you recognize between that North Hollywood event in 1997 and where you guys were at when you put that out five years later? Right. So that was a culmination of probably at least 10 years of, of uh, patrol rifle schools because that came out, we donated it to the NTOA like in 2002, I think, and they published it finally in 2003. Yep. Uh, but there was, a you know, the previous 10 years of that was, uh, you know, all the stuff that been learning and testing and evaluating uh, in our various uh, individual worlds. And then what we were doing at Center Mass and then what my friends John Peterson and uh, Mike Tack were doing out uh, on the, uh, the Northeast Coast, uh, specifically with our friends at SIG Arms Academy in, in that general area. And what we did is we met, married the two programs together uh, to create, you know, our patrol rifle instructor class and a lot of that book right there. The real catalyst behind that, that book, though, is John Peterson. Uh, he, he really was, uh, uh, he's the primary author of it. Mike Tack and I were, were reviewers and adding a few things in there, making sure it was, it was uh, uh, applicable for patrol officers. Uh, John has a military background and no law enforcement background. Yeah, which is important, but anybody who reads this recognizes the um, sort of uh, roots in the military. It, it is uh, A to Z thorough and uh, again, very comprehensive. Uh, and, and so that, that, that was a model. I, I know it was used by their agencies. It was referenced by speakers that were presenting at the conference. Uh, can you talk about how we, we ended up with a National Patrol Rifle Conference and Competition and that, that it was in Michigan? Yeah, so, so when we started uh, Center Master's Training Division, uh, 1998, uh, you know, that was one of the very first classes of patrol rifle instructor class and uh, the active shooter class. And it, it was clear that we needed something to, to test the officers or have the officers give them a different, a different uh, venue to evaluate themselves in their gear. Um, and the way that uh, I really learned about it is by hanging out with my friends, Derek Bartlett um, and a bunch of other guys from South Florida. Uh, we go down and we would uh, compete uh, in the mid and late 90s at Sniper Week. And that's a two-day seminar and a two-day uh, police sniper competition. And I learned, I learned more during the competition, uh, during the seminar, you learn incredible stuff. But during a competition, uh, I learned so much just by watching the really elite teams uh, and learning by osmosis from them, looking at how they pack their gear up 
how they unpack their sequencing, their communication amongst each other, the equipment that they used, absolutely incredible amounts of, of information uh, that I don't think I could have learned as quickly anywhere else just by, by being around those incredible uh, shooters. So I wanted to bring something like that into the police world for the patrol rifle. And so that's really how the National Patrol Rifle uh, Conference and Competition, which is now the National Patrol Rifle Championships, uh, came about in the year 2000. So uh, this is actually our 22nd year uh, in doing the event, which happens next week, October 16th. And we're very excited. Last year, of course, got cut, uh, canceled because of COVID. Um, but uh, that's how it, it, it all started, all because of uh, somebody else who influenced me greatly, Derek Bartlett. We love Derek, buddy. And, and uh, he, every once in a while, he'll get out here to the West Coast and I try to go hear him talk or take one of his classes. And that was really my first introduction to data-driven hey, look, this is what these people tell you, but here's what really happens. And uh, as a matter of fact, he came up the other day. Uh, we were talking with Mark Lang from Dallas. Yeah. And uh, Mark and I were talking about uh, ASA's mission and then how, how we can work together to get better data. Because for me, I need that data to tell you know the executives and the city council and everybody, hey, look, this is what's really happening across the country and what why I need to train my folks to this level, you know, and we fight, we talk about this in a lot of podcasts. It's not going to happen in my town. You know, this won't happen here. It happens there. And, oh, sure. and no one gets to pick when it happens, you know, and, and like you said, you, you have that time where you learn that lesson and you decide to quit or you figure out what to do better. So we're, we're super, uh, super excited to see where that goes and the, all the evolutions you've had, out there i'm sure you've had some trials and tribulations and what do you do now with just three jobs are you bored now <laughs> no i'm old damn it, that's, that's what it is. I'm, I'm okay with just three jobs now. <laughs> no I, i'm uh I'm, trust me i'm busier now that i retired from police work than uh than i think i was when i was working to be quite frank with you and, uh, someday i don't know when someday i'll i'll slow down and smell the, the roses a bit and maybe slow it down but right now that's not going to happen uh, it's funny you should mention that that whole thing with Derek and such because I I can remember going down there and you know he would always have that event in April or late March and of course for for kids from the Midwest you know you're talking 20 years ago uh, do anything to get out of here right get down to Florida where it's warm sun and go down there and train some bit and have some fun so we go down there and train go to dinner with the guys we'd always have a few drinks and the conversation would always get around you know well how long is the longest police sniper engagement? And everybody would say, well, my instructor told me 70, 75 yards around a table. You got cops from all over the country. You know, this is the late nineties or so. And they all, every year, the same conversation would happen. We all be saying, well, how often are you in a prone shooting position? Not very often. Huh? Interesting. So that was really the genesis of, well, part of the genesis of the ASA is, is a bunch of police snipers coming together year after year with the same issue of not knowing exactly where information came from. And Derek said, well, by God, we're going to figure out where it's coming from and we're going to start the ASA. First, the first thing out of the gate that was going to happen was a survey that, that took three years to do. Uh, and, and Derek uh, put all that information together and published that first uh, uh, report in 2005. 
and it blew a lot of uh, a lot of the nonsense right out of the water, which was incredible for all police snipers everywhere. Because then we had an independent report to show those city administrators, police chiefs, training bosses, blah blah blah, everybody. This is why I need this equipment. This is why I need this training. It's happening here. If it can happen there, it can happen here. So along those same philosophies that you that you preach at the patrol rifle conference, these are real life events that took place. And now we're going to do them in training for everybody. Cause if it happened there, it could happen to you. And you betcha. maybe some are a little bit uh, obscure, but they happened. And if Let we know they you. happened, we got to be prepared to deal with them. Let me tell you something. As part of the NPRC, we have an award. We call it the uh, chief Jeff Chudwin award for patrol rifle excellence. And so we get nominations from agencies across the nation every single year about what their patrol officers are doing with these rifles. Absolutely incredible what the cops nowadays are doing with these rifles. Uh, they are taking a fight to the bad guys left and right. Like never happened 20, 25 years ago. We didn't have the right equipment, right? These kids today are going out there and by God, if you bring the fight, they're going to end the fight for you real quick with, with their skill and their ability with these weapons. And I mean, the, the Chug One Award winner this year, absolutely incredible. A hostage rescue shot at, at 27 yards. Uh, he's got to cause instantaneous death. It's got to be a cranial vault shot. He's got uh, half the face to look at. He does his job. He holds hard. Bam, hits him right underneath the eye, saves this woman's life. Absolutely incredible. I mean, one thing after another. I mean, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of these things uh, that we have documentation on. And that's important because that brings me to my next point. And I hope that all you police officers out there will hear this. That, um, just like we did with the ASA and the Police Sniper Utilization Report, we're doing the same thing for patrol rifle now through the NPRC. So if you go to our website, centermassinc.com, you'll see right uh, in the top uh, navigation bar, a switch for um, the NPRC. Just hover on it and you'll see some, uh, some other drop downs coming. One of them will be the Patrol Rifle Utilization Survey. Click on that and open it up and if you've been in a patrol rifle shooting please fill that baby out we don't need no we don't even ask for names we just need the information surrounding the report it should take no more than five or ten minutes hit submit because we're, we're doing the same thing that the asa did we're compiling all this data and we're going to bring you the answers here as soon as we get about three or four hundred of them in there so we can start getting a good sample uh, we're going to share this information. I guarantee you it's going to shed light on it, just like the police sniper utilization uh, uh, survey did as well. So please consider doing that. And that's in addition to the data you already collected. I know you, you polled all the attendees that would come out to the conference about their patrol programs. Yeah. Uh, it covered the, the type of weapon used, like the specific make and model, calibers, um, bullet weights, sighting systems, barrel length, slings, lights, duration of the user course, all, all those things were included. And, and I couldn't make the, the pilgrimage out there to, to Novi every uh, every year, but I tried sure. to go every other year. And when that was incorporated into that, you know, the conference um, manual or guide that came in, yeah. it, was, it was really interesting to see those trends and how this grew in like the professionalism of the patrol rifle officer. Can you, so one of the things I, I shot a little bit competitively before uh, going out and trying the patrol rifle competition it, and this, the way you guys develop those courses, 
and really put the, the shooters into a dilemma be, between there's kind of an easy path and a more challenging path. There was always a direct correlation between the decisions that had to be made in life, split second decisions. Can you talk about how, and if you want to give a couple examples of courses, um, please do so, but how that was constructed so that some of our listeners may incorporate that in some of our, some of their training. Yeah, 21 years uh, of doing it. There's five courses of fire every single year. Same range, it's a conservation association right here in Metro Detroit that we go to, really, really nice place. But you know, you can only do so much stuff in training, right? Every single year, the courses of fire are different. And the officers that attend never know what they're gonna be uh, getting into, just like on the street. You either have it that day or you don't, one or the other, right? Um, and so every year, what I use a drive, as a driving guide to develop these courses is the Chubwin Award nomination, right? And to think like a couple guys from Iowa this year shot bad guys at 290 and 300 yards from a full standing position. Now, what patrol officer thinks that's going to happen in their lifetime, right? Yeah. They, they just don't. Uh, a few years ago, there's another Chudwin Award nomination uh, from a, an officer out at Phoenix PD. This guy shot a bad guy with iron sights, prone position, 326 yards. All right. We just don't, you know, oftentimes we get caught in our own little squares and, and we don't want, we don't like to break out of them. So that's what I use is the Chudwin Award nominations to help me drive the development of the courses. To piggyback on that. Each year you also have a bunch of speakers come out and you've had some pretty incredible, I guess, legendary folks, really, you know, and Chris has come back a couple of times and talked to me about it where some poor speakers just trying to have his sandwich in between speaking and yeah. Chris sees them and that's it. The guy's stuck now for a long time. Kyle Lamb came to talk to me about my backpack, buddy. Don't ski that. <laughs> Don't listen. The facts of the story aren't what's important here. Okay. <laughs> Never so, let the truth interfere with a good cop story. That's a good point. It's, so I'll just share that. All of these guys that come to speak, they interact with competitors. And so like I, I'm eating the lunch that's provided during the competition. I'm sitting down under the tent and Carl Lamb comes over and he says, he's got questions about the backpack and he just sits down and, and we just talk about rifles and backpacks and anybody else that approached him at the time, he, he talked to, to everybody, but that experience has repeated itself over and over, whether it's been guys that were involved in hellacious OISs with long recoveries because they were wounded during these incidents, or uh, if they're guys that became quasi celebrities. I remember you know, Chris Kyle was out there. Um, we had, lots of other folks and, and some of them that aren't with us anymore that have uh, had a chance to speak. What are a couple that stood out to you? Well, the two you just mentioned right off the bat. First off, uh, Chris Kyle, uh, it, it's an incredible story with him. I became uh, uh, friends with him in 2009, uh, which I think is the year he got out of the Navy. He came to where he came to Sniper Week down in Florida uh, to do some debriefs on the stuff that he had learned uh, in the war to share with a bunch of us police snipers. That's where I became friends with him. There's some good stories that go along with that, but I'm not going to publicize it right now. Um, but, so anyhow, so 2010, uh, we ended up bringing him, I believe it was 2010, we brought him up to Detroit for uh, the MPRC. Uh, he, he was incredible, and, and as well as Sergeant Major Lamb. Sergeant Major Lamb, 
key, I think is probably the only keynote speaker that came out and spent the entire day with us on the range, if, if I'm not mistaken. And I noticed it right off the bat. I was like, I was shocked because uh, he was going around. He was talking to all the police and wanting to learn from the cops. Sergeant Major Lamb, of all people. You know, I just thought that that was absolutely incredible. Yeah, absolutely and he was incredible. He was already, you know, VTech famous at that point. He doesn't yeah. come for a while, but he was asking the guys doing the work questions about their stuff and, and how it yeah. works and what they're doing. That, that was amazing. And tr- indeed it was. You know, Dan Bonagino, he was fantastic. There's, there's just been so many incredible, incredible folks. And, and here's the thing. Um, we don't pay any of those people a single dime. They come out out of the goodness of their heart to share their experiences uh, uh, with us cops. I mean, that's what good folks these people really are. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Uh, Dakota Meyer. Shit. I don't know how the hell I just, I, I mean, another guy, unbelievable, you know, um, the, and their message is, is always the same thing is, is that you're going to fight the way that you train, right? That you, so you, you better make sure that your training is realistic uh, as possible and that your fundamentals are there. You know, that, that's the bottom line. Uh, the, the, the advanced training is really just the mastery of the, the fundamentals. I think I heard one of those guys say once, um, and I, I think that's absolutely correct. The other underlying uh, uh, message from them is just to never ever give up. Period. And, uh, incredible, incredible it, people, no question. It is pretty awesome, isn't it? That you you can listen to somebody speak and you'll you'll learn from their experience. If you get to have a conversation, it's always incredible to me that they're trying to learn from you. You know, they're lifelong <laughs> learners. No matter who you are, I'm going to learn something from you. And Chris and I have had an opportunity through Cato to meet just incredible folks like that. And every time I, I just walk away going, Hey, uh, that just made me better in so many ways. I don't even know. And, uh, <laughs> but it always comes back to the fundamentals. We talk a lot. Everybody has the person listening right now on their tactical team or their detective unit or your, wherever you are, that is the equipment guy. And it's like, well, if I don't have this, it's unsafe. I need to have this. And then you, you talk to these high performing uh, units and they have good gear, but that's not what makes them good. And you watch what they do and it's just really mastered the fundamentals. There's All no they did is master the fundamentals. There's no question about it. If your fundamentals aren't there to begin with, you might as well not waste a second or a dime on doing anything dynamic in the training environment or so-called realistic. Because if you can't hit the broad side of a barn to begin with, uh, it's just a waste of time. It's a waste of money uh, and it's a waste of effort. you got to hit what you're shooting at. Then you do the cool guy stuff, right? I'll give yeah. a couple of examples of some of the courses of fire that, that speak to that. I mean, so uh, I believe the range goes out to 300 yards, but we only shoot to 200 yards. Is that right at the conservation area? Is it just 200 yards? 220 is max. So there's always courses where you can shoot a bigger target at 100 yards uh, for a lower point value, or you can shoot a smaller target at 200 yards Ah, for a higher point value, but it's like heroes and zeros. If you miss, you lose everything. And it's it's a confidence in you, the, the operator in your equipment, and you'll throw in a simple thing like you'll fire a single shot from one side of a cone, you safe the weapon, switch your prone position, just moving to the other side of that cone, moving eight inches. 
-hmm. and then you're on the clock but the, the time constraints aren't unreasonable it's, it's oh. just enough to be a factor mm -hmm. and you'd be surprised how many guys with two thousand dollar rifles with twenty five hundred dollar optics on them who, yeah. who, who practice but sure. just don't train for the subtleties of those changes in movements and all of a sudden you've put up a goose egg and, and you're out of the running like you're you're well, gonna be in the the bottom 50. <laughs> the subtleties of those movements and the pressure of competition. Right. You know, I mean, I, there's just so many ways that we can bring stress in the training environment, right? One of the great ways is through competition. You know, yeah. Am I going to be as good as my buddy? I know everybody else is watching. Are they going to bust my balls? Whatever. It's training first and you need to learn where you're weak at to get better, right? And that's yeah. one of the great things about the whole, the whole competition. They'll throw a picture up where you've got a uh, array of, you know, like a like a six pack of photos and you have your your target photo in there. And then you've got a low crawl under an obstacle for 25 yards and then you're going to shoot through an intermediate barrier at the correct picture, which is a reduced size. So offset, understanding the deflection, if you're not perpendicular to your intermediate barrel, all the all those things factor in. And oh, by the way, you're on the clock. And I think that's you know, one of the things that's often missing from our training is that, that additional constraint. I mean, we can get the heart rate and the emotional hijack through some force on force yeah. uh, scenarios, but it, it's a different dimension um, in the, uh, the competitions that you run. There's always a physical component to it. You're going to be going over, under, and through. I know the gig pit was a big thing for a, a couple of years and just a little bit of sand, a little bit of moon dust on somebody's rifle cause it not to function. And, and that's exactly right. You know, and, and that's, uh, that's a key point of this too, is this is not a, a, a SWAT competition or a sniper competition. This is designed for Joe Blow Patrol, right? And we have to, well, we don't have to, but we do add some elements in there just to, to add the stress factors and not to turn them into, uh, you know, a slot guy or anything like that. And, and so we try to, we really try to keep it as relevant to the patrol environment as possible. They say, well, Jack, well, look, we never really have to crawl anymore. I said, never? You've never had to like keep low and stay behind a wall or whatever to get to uh, wherever you need to go. And how often do you, we don't really shoot through glass very often. Well, maybe you don't during training, but when you go out on the street, how many times have you been looking at using that rifle and looking at bad guys through glass, whether it's in a car, in a house, in a, in a commercial building? Okay, well, I guess you're right. So you got to sometimes frame it like that uh, for folks uh, to, to understand that you're, you're not doing something that is unrealistic or unrelevant or irrelevant, I'm sorry, to uh, um, uh, the patrol environment, right? I'm a firm believer today that we need to train the patrolmen uh, teach them as as much stuff as we possibly can from the, the tactical side as we teach uh to our our SWAT guys they don't have to turn into SWAT guys but we need to dump that information down to them because they are in the fight every single day day in and day out joe blow patrolman is he needs this information he needs to know how to cause instantaneous death with his patrol if he needs to be chug one winner this year is a great example you know they need to know this stuff. They need to understand their capabilities and limitations shooting through glass. They're in the fight day in and day out. They need the information. And it's our job as the, the leaders in our organizations to, to make sure that it gets passed down to them one way or the other. So you're so right. Like in my brief career, how much more complicated the patrol job is, you know, and, and how much more, how higher the expectation is of, 
the intelligence and the tactics that the average patrol person now needs to be able to execute. And that's, that's kind of how we look at it at Cato too. It's not a SWAT organization. It's an organization to approve professionalism and tactics for everybody. Because think about when I started or when you started, we didn't have vests and plate carriers and helmet. Most, most of the time we didn't even have a helmet. I don't, I don't think I got a helmet for the first 10 years of my career. Right. And just yeah. going to man with a gun calls with a pistol, maybe a, maybe an 870 pump shotgun. Right. And, yeah. and then post Hollywood, we all get rifles, but how much are we really getting trained on them? Now the opposite. I have the opposite problem. Like, Hey, not everybody needs a rifle on this one. Like, <laughs> like we scale the response to the problem, you know, like how many rifles do I need inside a mo- uh, a motel room? Like, I don't, I don't need too many. And, uh, and then I like what you said about our, our profession really struggles with like moving targets. How often do my, you know, my agency, how often do we get to shoot at moving targets? I got to tell you, I did a couple like really static, you know, cardboard across the range moving target drills. But until I went to basic sniper school, I hadn't even shot at a moving three-dimensional target before. And it blew my mind, like how different it was, you know, like watching where the clothing goes. And if I get the angle wrong, I'm, I'm not really getting an effective shot because I'm so used to shooting on paper. And just that alone, I, I, still, I still remember exactly. I was in a kneeling position with my 308 and it was a three-dimensional, you know, robot dummy on the range with a heavy jacket yeah. and I blew my mind trying to track that thing with the scope and do all that. And I, yeah, it was, it was great. It was, I'm like, this is the most realistic thing I've ever done in training. And, and I just thought, why aren't we all doing this? Well, I don't know if we all don't. I know we, I know we know we should be doing it and we should right. try to do it whenever we can, but uh, there's all kinds of excuses on, on why, you know, some of us aren't doing it. You just well, let's figure out a way to do it somehow, some way. Yeah, and and it doesn't have to cost tons of money. Sometimes we get hung up on that. But I, I so that, again, that's kind of why we wanted to bring some awareness to your conference. And going back to the conference, you often have uh, a charity. Can yeah. you tell us about how you did that? And that seems to be a core value at each conference. Well, so every year, um, one of the gracious sponsors will give us a, a rifle. Usually it's Daniel Defense. Everybody wants one of those rifles, so they'll pay 20 bucks for a raffle ticket. And uh, we'll sell a bunch of them and $6,000 or so every year. And uh, I will give it away to the lucky winner. And uh, we raise that money. We give it to whoever it is we are uh, supporting that year. This year, it is the Call for Backup Foundation, which uh, is for first responders and it helps them with PTSD issues and stuff. So. You know, we've done it for the Chris Kyle Foundation. We've done it for uh, Michigan Concerns of Police Survivors. We've done it for, I mean, all kinds of different places each year. Uh, every year it's different. This year it is called for backup. So can you tell us just a little bit more about the North American Active Assailant Conference? We talked about the NPRC portion. I know you guys have uh, sort of combined yeah. the event. Can you talk about that transition? and, and what? Yes. So uh, my good friend, Jim Atson, who is a firefighter uh, here in Metro Detroit, um, uh, is the brainchild behind this. Um, and he used to run a conference called the International Tactical Medics Association, I believe what it was. And they had a giant conference years and years ago, and it kind of went by the wayside. And he kind of just has, has taken that format and 
we formatted that into the North American Act of Assailant Conference. Um, and obviously they bring in the, the key players in these incidents from around the world every single year. Um, but it's a different twist on it. it. Like our event was just for the cops and for military and armed security, right? Well, he's opened this up to all the stakeholders of uh, the, the active violence. You know, you're talking about not only the cop response, but the fire response, the ambulance, the nurses, the docs, uh, the security folks, everybody. So it's, yeah, everybody, man, I'm telling you. And it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's just a huge event. So last year, I think in 2019, we had almost 2000 folks uh, attend this year. Uh, we were, we were thinking it was going to be 3000, but again, because of COVID and nobody having staffing and such, it's only going to be probably around 12 to 1500, still gigantic. I guarantee you that when uh, everything heals up here and COVID's behind us and everything's back to normal, he's going to have to find a bigger venue because I think the most that they can take is 3000 because it is, it is just a super well-run event. And what ended up happening is the MPRC also had its seminar park, right? And it also usually concentrated on active shooter type events and or patrol rifle events. And so we said, why should we both be doing the same thing? Let's merge these two things together, pool our resources so we can both do a better job uh, at the service that we're trying to provide. So that's how we kind of merged them up. Okay, can I share an example uh, how this comes sure. through? So a few years ago at the, this, uh, the NPRC, um, there was an agency that was doing a debrief about an active, an active shooter event. And it wasn't one where there was a kinetic in with the officers and suspects, but there was, it got national headlines. There was a lot of loss, unfortunately, but there was a lot of uh, really good work done by the officers. And um, there was you know, two neighboring agencies had a very different response and it, it was rooted in their preparation and one agency uh, learning from events that had happened in their region previously had started several years prior building up the capacity for their agency and not just with police, but with fire. And so when this event went down, they responded to that mutual aid request. They were on the spot and, and they were really much more effective um, than the, the, the parent agency that was there. And their, their message, you know, wasn't to talk about, Hey, we did better, but it's, when we got to this event, our officers said it replicated what they saw in training and, and they were able to make decisions in a timely manner and switch away from the stop the killing because there was no stimulus. There wasn't any more gunfire. They found out later the suspect had left, uh, but they, they stopped the dying and they went into action and they threw on more tourniquets than the fire component did. And that was something that uh, was a big takeaway for me. And I was like, you know, usually I'm looking to try and learn how somebody prevailed in one of these lethal force encounters. But that was the value uh, in that debrief that was provided and, and tried to carry it over in my agency and share that with the other agencies uh, while we teach in Cato as well. That there's lessons to be learned from these events and you can implement these things in your home agency right away. And Carla just retired too, just so you know. Oh, last week. Wow. Right. <laughs> I know. Incredible. Don't worry, Chris, you'll, you'll get there eventually. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know how great it is. I'll tell you, there's a lot of life after police work, guys. There's no question about it. It's hard to understand right now. I know for you, but you trust me. There, there is a lot of life after police work. I, I know we're getting close to wrapping up, but I, I want to 
share one other ob observation that kind of validated this uh, this conference for me, and, and that was the presence of the guys from like Illinois and Michigan and Ohio, uh, Texas Tactical Officers Associations. Like there was lots of you know meat eating SWAT guys and gals that showed up to this event, and they would drive from New Jersey uh, straight through and. You know, that level of commitment sort of reinforced uh, the conference was accomplishing and the competition was accomplishing what you had set out to do. Uh, how important is it uh, for you to have those ongoing relationships and uh, just how does it drive where the conference is going to go or the competition? Well, I mean, if, if you haven't figured out that life is about networking yet uh, out there for your listeners, you're making a giant mistake. It's all about networking and, and uh, learning and, and never quitting. It's all about that. And, and uh, so it's huge. And those relationships are, are uh, incredible. I've made lifelong friends starting down at Sniper Week in the mid-90s. You know, those guys, Brian Sane, Dave Agata, Derek Bartlett, all those guys, uh, Mike Tack, still great, great dear friends of mine today. And they come up to the NPRC every now and then. And I go down at Sniper Week every now and then. So we still see each other. So it's about networking. It truly is. I think that's what makes our profession so great. Is that it used to be coming. like that, though. You know, yeah. we, it wasn't we so still easy struggle. to network. It wasn't so easy to network back in the yeah. day. Right? But it sure is now, though, you know, through this type of medium, you know? Yeah, I will say one of the things... If I have something good to say about COVID is that at least we got good at online meetings, which sometimes uh, I'm okay with. Not all the time, but sometimes I, I'm, I'm totally okay with. So uh, before you go, can you tell us a little bit about where do you, where do you see the future uh, of the conference of patrol rifle programs? Where do you see some challenges for, for our profession and, and uh, what's next, what's next for you and center mass? Well, I'll talk about the profession to start. I, I see major problems coming uh, in a decade or two when we've got patrolmen uh, working the street that are 60 years old, 70 years old. They don't have pensions anymore. Uh, and, uh, you know, these guys and gals that are coming on the job today for the places that don't have pensions are going to have to work until they're in their 60s. And they better hope that they have some sort of admin jobs for those old people to do because the street is not a place for. Uh, an old person who is not in really good shape. Uh, it just isn't. I don't care how, who wants to argue that. Uh, you're going to see that. It's going to take another 10, 15 years, and we'll start seeing patrol officers out there uh, responding to calls, um, having a hard time getting there sometimes, probably because their their hips hurt. I'm, I'm one of them right now if I was on the job, for God's sakes. You know, I, I think that's a truth that's not yet seen, but we'll be seeing it uh, in another decade or two. For me, my time is coming to a close here. I, I don't want to be that, that old gray hair fat guy in a skin tight flight suit running around. Uh, I, want to, I want to be remembered for, for doing a good job, giving it up my all, um, you know, when I was relatively young. Uh, so uh, you might see me for a couple more years and, and then I think I'm going to slowly fade away and it's got to be handed off to, to younger generations to, to continue to uh, push everybody towards a better end that's for me and what was the other question here just where do you see the future 
the future of center mass? And are you, are you looking at, uh, I think what you're doing is great, but what are you guys looking for uh, in the future? Well, uh, we're probably gonna, we're probably going to move towards uh, a bit more of the manufacturing side. Uh, right now uh, we got into the commercial side. So we have a indoor range and a retail store uh, for the citizens here in Metro Detroit. Uh, and it does really, really well. Uh, but I personally, uh, my part of the business that I like being influential on is the training side and the idea side. Uh, what can we make better? How can we skin the cat just a little bit better in, in any, any possible way that we can? So I think you'll see us uh, involved with more manufacturing um, in the future. That's uh, exciting. Chris is already saving his pennies. It ought to be frightening. <laughs> Th thank you. Thanks for spending the time with us. In our notes here, we'll put links to where folks can learn more about Center Mass and the conference. Okay. And hopefully uh, you and your successors will keep preaching the good word because uh, as much great work we've had in, in our, you know, couple generations of police work is networking and learning. And we're, we're just at the tip of really data helpful data. Like everyone talks about data-driven policing, but I, I mean helpful data, like, hey, this is real life problems and this is how often they happen and here's how you can train for them. Yeah. And uh, as much as we all agree with that, we still get stuck in, you know, some of the, the old ways of doing business and looking at how to solve those problems. And I, I'm always amazed every time I get to go to any of these events, I am always impressed with the people in our profession, how smart they are, how dedicated they are, and how creative cops are at solving problems, man. You, you just get just that. Uh, it's a little bit textbook. It's a little bit uh, common sense and a little bit improv. Ingenious improv, right? And so I, I love hearing about how people solve those problems. <laughs> yep, I do too. I, I love uh, one of my good buddies in South Florida has a saying. Uh, he says, give the hardest job to the laziest person. They'll figure out the easiest way to do it. I don't, I don't know how much truth is there is in that. That's wisdom. That we're lazy by any means. I just love that. Analogy. No, that's, that's great wisdom, right? That's great wisdom. Yeah, that's very true. Well, thank you, sir. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Jeff. Good to see you. Hope to be out there next year. My pleasure, guys. Thank you for the, uh, the opportunity here today. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.